0: Welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and before we get started today, I'd like to issue a quick apology. Um, it's been a while since I published an episode, and that just happens to be because of myriad range of things, but mostly the end of the school year can be crazy sometimes, but this year was especially crazy. So I do apologize if you've been wondering, where's, where are the episodes? Um, now that summer is kind of almost here for me, um, I hope to have uh, a, a lot lined up. So I do apologize. Thank you for being patient, um, but I hope it's worth the wait because oh my goodness, it's been like a month. Um, So I got inspired for today's episode by a story that I ran across on the BBC website the other day called Why Frankenstein is the Story that Defines Our Fears by Rebecca Lawrence. One night, during the strangely cool and wet summer of 1816, a group of friends gathered in the Via Diodati on the shores of Lake Geneva. We will each write a ghost story, Lord Byron announced to the others, who included Byron's doctor John Polidori, Percy Shelley, and the 18-year-old Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. I busied myself to think of a story, Mary wrote, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror. Her tale became a novel, published two years later as Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus, the story of a young natural philosophy student who, burning with crazed ambition, brings a body to life but rejects his horrifying creature in fear and disgust. Frankenstein is simultaneously the first science fiction novel, a gothic horror, a tragic romance, and a parable all sewn into one towering body. Its two central tragedies—one of overreaching and the dangers of playing God, the other of parental abandonment and societal rejection—are as relevant today as ever. Are there any characters more powerfully cemented in the popular imagination? The two archetypes Mary brought to life, the creature and the overambitious or mad scientist, lurched and ranted their way off the page and onto the stage and screen, electrifying theater and filmgoers as two of the linchpins, not just of the horror genre, but of cinema itself. Frankenstein spawned interpretations and parodies that reach from the very origins of the moving image in Thomas Edison's horrifying 19- 1910 short film through Hollywood's Universal Pictures and Britain's Hammer series to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it foreshadows, foreshadowed others such as 2001 A Space Oz- Odyssey. There are Italian and Japanese Frankensteins and a blaxploitation film, Blackenstein. Mel Brooks, Kenneth Branagh, and Tim Burton all have their own takes. The characters or themes appear in or have inspired comic books, video games, spin-off novels, TV series, and songs by artists as diverse as Ice Cube, Metallica, and T-Pow. It was a flight on the wings of a young girl's dreams that flew too far away and we could make the monster live again. As a parable, the novel has been used as an argument both for and against slavery and revolution, vivisection and the empire, and as a dialogue between history and progress, religion and atheism. Side note, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was a staunch abolitionist. I'm sure she wouldn't have appreciated whatever idiot thought to use her work as an argument for slavery. People can be awful. Anyway, The prefix Franken thrives in the modern lexicon as a byword for any anxiety about science, scientists, and the human body, and has been used to shape worries about the atomic bomb, GM crops, strange foods, stem cell research, and both to characterize and assuage fears about AI. In the two centuries since she wrote it, Mary's tale, in the words of Bobby Pickett's comedy song, Monster Mash, has truly been a graveyard smash that caught on in a flash. Why was Mary's vision of science gone wrong so ripe a vessel to carry our fears? She certainly captured the zeitgeist. The early 19th century teetered on the brink of the modern age, and although the term science existed... A scientist didn't. Great change brings fear, as Fiona Sampson, author of a new biography of Mary Shelley tells BBC BBC Culture, with modernity, with the sense that humans are what there is, comes a sense of anxiety about what humans can do, and particularly an anxiety about science and technology. Frankenstein fused these contemporary concerns about the possibilities of science with fiction for the very first time, with electrifying results. Far from an outrageous fantasy, the novel imagined what could happen if people, and in particular overreaching or unhinged scientists, went too far several points of popular 19th century intellectual discourse appear in the novel. We know from Mary's writings that in that Vio Diodati tableau of 1816, Shelley and Byron discussed the principle of life. Contemporary debates raged on the nature of humanity and whether it was possible to raise the dead. In the book's 1831 preface, Mary Shelley noted Galvanism as an influence, referring to Luigi Galvani's experiments uh, using electric currents to make frogs' legs twitch. Galvani's nephew, Giovanni Aldini, would go further in 1803, using a newly dead murderer as his subject. Many of the doctors and thinkers at the heart of these debates, such as the chemist Sir Humphrey Davy, were connected to Mary's father, the preeminent intellectual William Godwin, who himself had developed principles warning of the dangers and moral implications of overreaching. Despite these nuggets of contemporary thought, though, there's little in the way of tangible theory, method or scientific paraphernalia in frankenstein the climactic moment of creation is described simply with an, with an anxiety that almost amounted to agony i collected the instruments of life around me that i might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet the science of the book is rooted in its time and yet timeless It is so vague, therefore, as to provide an immediate linguistic and visual reference point for moments of great change and fear. But surely the reason we turn to Frankenstein when expressing an anxiety about science is down to the impression the monster and mad scientist have had on our collective brains. How did this happen? Just as the science is vague in the book, so is the description of the creature as he comes to life. The moment is distilled into a single, blood-curdling image. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull, yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs." With his yellow skin, watery eyes, shriveled complexion, and straight black lips, the creature is far from the beautiful ideal Frankenstein intended. This spare but resonant prose proved irresistible to theater and later filmmakers and their audiences, as Christopher Frayling notes in his book, Frankenstein the First 200 Years. The shocking novel became a scandalous play, and, of course, a huge hit, first in Britain and then abroad. These early plays, Frayling argues, set the tone for future dramatizations. They condensed the, the story into basic archetypes, adding many of the most memorable elements audiences would recognize today, including the comical lab assistant, the line, it lives, and a bad-brained monster who doesn't speak. Side note, uh, copyright laws weren't really a thing in that time in Britain, so a lot of theaters just like, you know, stole her story and made it their own. Uh, So Mary Shelley actually didn't really see, even though it was a very popular story and uh very prevalent on the london stage she didn't really see money from that which is a shame uh anyway it's a double-edged sword that the monstrous success of hollywood's vision james Whale's 1931 film for universal starring boris karloff as the creature in many ways secured the story's longevity but obscured mary's version of it Frankenstein the film created the definitive movie image of the mad scientist and in the process launched a thousand imita- imitations. Frailing writes, it fused a domesticated form of expressionism, overacting, an irreverent adaptation of an acknowledged classic, European actors and visualizers, and the American carnival tradition to create an American genre. It began to look as though Hollywood, Had actually invented Frankenstein. And so, a movie legend was born. Although Hollywood may have cherry-picked from Mary Shelley to cement its version of the story, it's clear she also borrowed from historical myths to create her own. The subtitle of Frankenstein, The Modern Prometheus, name-checks the figure of ancient Greek and Latin mythology who variously steals fire from the gods and gives it to man, or makes a man out of clay and represents the dangers of overreaching but the other great myth of the novel is of god and adam and a quote from paradise lost appears in the epigraph to frankenstein did i request thee, maker from my clay to mold me man and it is above all the creature's tragedy and his humanity that in his cinematic transformation into a mute but terrifying monster has been forgotten. Mary gave him a voice and a literary education in order to express his thoughts and desires. He is one of the three narrators in the book. Like the Tempest's Caliban, to whom Shakespeare gives a poetic and poignant speech, the creature's lament is haunting. Remember that I am thy creature, I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss, from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good, misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. If we think of the creature as a badly made and unattractive human, his tragedy deepens. His first catastrophic rejection is by his creator, who, which Christopher Frayling calls that postpartum moment and is often identified as a parental abandonment. If you consider That Mary Shelley had lost her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, at her own birth, had just buried her baby girl, and was looking after her pregnant stepsister as she was writing the book, which took exactly nine months to complete, the relevance of birth and death makes even more sense. The baby creature is alienated further as society recoils from him. He is made good, but it is the rejection that creates his murderous revenge. As an allegory of our responsibility to children, outsiders, or those who don't conform to conventional ideals of beauty, there isn't a stronger one. Uh, can I just say that one more time? The baby creature is alienated further as society recoils from him. He is made good, but it is the rejection that creates his murderous revenge as an allegory of our responsibility to children, outsiders, or those who don't conform to conventional ideals of beauty, there isn't a stronger one. So, uh, let's treat people better, right? Anyway, The way that we sometimes identify with Frankenstein, as we've all taken risks, we've all had hubristic moments, and partly with the creature, they are both aspects of ourselves, all ourselves, Fiona Sampson tells BBC Culture. They both speak to us about being human. And that's incredibly powerful. Some modern interpretations, such as Nick Deere's 2011 play, directed by Danny Boyle for the National Theater, have highlighted the question of who is the monster and who is the victim, with the lead actors Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch alternating roles each night. And in this shape-shifting context, it's fitting that the creature is widely mistaken as Frankenstein rather than his creator. Side note, if you're interested in seeing this production, National Theatre Live does screenings every so often, and showings are coming up in October of this year in the States. If you are a teacher or student in England, lucky you, you can watch the entire thing online for free through the National Theatre website. Super cool. A friend and I saw it a couple of years ago with Johnny Lee Miller playing Frankenstein and Benedict Cumberbatch playing his creature, and it was exquisite. I'm very interested to see the role of reversal and will hopefully get the chance this October. So, could a new cinematic version of Frankenstein be on the cards? One which brings together the creature's humanity, the mirroring of man and monster, and contemporary anxieties? Just like the Romantics age, but this time of AI, which brings its own raft of fears and moral quandaries. A clutch of recent films and TV shows have channeled Frankenstein exploring what it means to be human in the context of robotics and AI. Blade Runner, Ex Machina, AI, Her, Humans, and Westworld among them. But there is one film director, rumored to have been developing the story for a while, who might be able to recapture the creature's lament as a parable for our time. Collecting a BAFTA for a different sci-fi monster fable, The Shape of Water, this year, Guillermo del Toro thanked Mary Shelley because she picked up the plight of Caliban, and she she gave weight to the burden of Prometheus, and she gave voice to the voiceless and presence to the invisible, and she showed me that sometimes to talk about monsters, we need to fabricate monsters of our own, and parables do that for us. Side note, I confess I didn't have too much interest in seeing The Shape of Water, although I've heard it's amazing, until I read this quote. Also, I'm a bit surprised that the TV series Penny Dreadful didn't come up in this article because Rory Kinnear's- (laughs) hey, fellow Rory, uh, you're so talented, let's be friends. Anyway, Rory Kinnear's portrayal of Frankenstein's creature is probably the truest and best I've seen compared to the book. Seriously, he's so good. But back to the novel. When the then Mary Godwin thought up her chilling parable that summer of 1816, she couldn't have imagined how far it would go to shape culture and society, science and fear, well into the 21st century. And now once again I bid my hideous progeny go forth and prosper, she wrote in the preface to the 1831 edition. The creator and creature, parent and child, the writer and her story, they went forth and did they prosper? Two hundred years since its publication, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is no longer just a tale of thrilling horror, but its own myth sent out into the world. I decided to split this story idea into two episodes because I'm currently reading a brilliant biography by Charlotte Gordon called Romantic Outlaws, which slips back and forth between the lives of Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein, and her mother, total rocking feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, whose life and works had a much more profound impact than I ever could have imagined. So be on the lookout for that in the near future. In the meantime, I have some recommendations if your curiosity has been roused. In the show notes, I'm including helpful links for a few fascinating things. Edison's short film mentioned in today's episode, super creepy. An episode of the podcast Imaginary Worlds that delves into the catastrophic world events that took place right before Mary Shelley began writing Frankenstein and had a marked effect on her story. If you're not interested in listening and prefer to read, I'm also including the link to the transcript as found on the Illusionist website, which is how I heard that story in the first place. Hat tip, if you are really into etymology, I highly recommend that podcast. Truly entertaining and informative and such a cool name. It's Illusionist with an A. Brilliant! from Arizona State University, the Frankenstein Bicentennial Project. I have a link to that. And last but certainly not least, a link to the NT Live page for that Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch production that will be screening in October. Thank you so much for listening. And if you love the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you hate it, tell an enemy that it's awesome. Uh, you know, and if you love it, tell, tell a friend, but I think it's really funny to (laughs) recommend things that you don't like to people you don't like. And that's awful. I don't want to leave on such a negative note. So I won't, uh, real quick story. One of my teacher nicknames, one of my favorite teacher nicknames comes from a student who was determined to come up with the best one. Uh, and she started calling me, robinstein um and then it evolved into a mel brooks young frankenstein joke so anytime she said it (laughs) uh i would respond with no no robinstein robinstein uh so that was a fun little adventure with that particular child anywho thanks for listening have a wonderful day